Hi, I'm your host, Dave Kemp, and this is Future Ear Radio. Each episode, we're breaking down one new thing, one cool new finding that's happening in the world of hearables, the world of voice technology. How are these worlds starting to intersect? How are these worlds starting to collide? What cool things are going to come from this intersection of technology? Without further ado, let's get on with the show. All right, so we are joined here today by two great audiologists. I have Ashley Hughes and Natalie Nelson. So why don't we go one by one, introducing yourself, telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do. We'll start with you, Ashley. Yeah, thanks for having us here today. Um, Obviously, my name is Ashley. I am an audiologist and I earned my clinical doctorate from University of Illinois in 2014. Um, After graduating, I did work in clinic for about a year um, and then I was really interested in making that switch to industry. And so I did work for a hearing aid manufacturer as a research audiologist uh, for about five years after that. A little over a year ago, I joined the team at Interacoustics and work as a staff audiologist there. Uh, Addition to, or in addition to those things. I'm also highly involved in my state organization, the Minnesota Academy of Audiology, and our national organization, the American Academy of Audiology. Uh, Outside of those things and outside of audiology, um, some of my interests are running. I'm a a pretty uh, avid runner um, and exercise in general. I really enjoy spending time outside, hiking, backpacking. I'm a big animal person. We have two dogs and a tortoise. Um, <laughs> a tortoise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love um, it. Yeah. And just kind of spending time with people. Does the tortoise like remind you of like the tortoise and the hare because you love running so much? It's like, it's like a humbling thing of like slow things down sometimes. No, but now it's going to, but you don't have to tell <laughs> me to slow down my running. I do just fine at that. <laughs> <laughs> you have like a hundred medals behind you. So you must be a pretty good runner. I, I can run far and not fast. I like okay. to say that in races, I really get uh, my money's worth. There you go. I love it. <laughs> Natalie, how about you? Um, so hi, everyone. I'm Natalie. I'm, I'm also a audiologist. I graduated in 2017 with my clinical doctorate from Northern Illinois University. And I worked clinically for two years after graduation um, out in Colorado, and then I joined um, the team at Phonak as a clinical trainer back in 2019. Um, So it's been just about two years since I started here, um, and that relocated myself and my husband to Austin, Texas, which is where I'm currently based. Um, I like to do lots of things outside of audiology. (laughs) Um, I'm big weightlifter, big into working out. Um, so Ashley and I have lots of things in common, um, including working out and then, um, big into traveling, love to explore the world. And well, I've only really explored like one country outside of the United States, (laughs) but have, uh, lived a pretty sheltered life growing up and hadn't, uh, been anywhere or flown till I was 25. So I'm looking forward to, uh, seeing where things, you know, go from where we've been and be able to explore and travel a little bit more coming up soon. Love it. And I see in the background, you're a Cubs fan. I can see at last the world series posters. Is that you or is that your husband? It is me. That's why they're in my pretty (laughs) office. So yes, grew up a a Chicago Cubs fan. Everybody in my family, except for one of my grandfathers, um, was a Cubs fan. And so um, have been to many a games at Wrigley and I actually really love baseball. Um, 
my goal in life is to go to all of the baseball stadiums mm, that exist um, because I just, I just love baseball and I love live baseball, but I, I'm one of those weirdos that can also watch it on TV and be completely, you know, Engulfed. enthralled by it. Yeah. Yep. Well, you probably <laughs> That's another don't... thing that uh, Natalie and I realized we have in common is we're both Cubs fans. You're both Cubs fans and mm-hmm. you're talking with the Cardinals fans. So should I just end the podcast well, now? Honestly, <laughs> I don't know if we can go on. <laughs> I have, I will say though, I've been to Bush stadium where I went to school for um, deaf ed for a small portion nice. of time was actually much closer to St. Louis. And I had a, a, a gentleman before I started seeing my husband take <laughs> me on a first date to Bush Pick stadium to game. <laughs> and uh, they had season tickets. So it was in those cool rows where you get served nice. um, and like a waitress comes and like takes your order. And, you know, I sit in the bleachers at Wrigley because that's where my <laughs> soul belongs. So I was very fancy, but yeah, very nice stadium. Love it. Yeah. Well, I've spent many a game at, at Wrigley as well. So I will, I will tip my hat and say that I've enjoyed those bleachers very, very much. They're a lot of fun. So, um, well, thank you two very much for joining me. This is going to be a great conversation. Um, you know, these two approached me with kind of their big passion and the thing that I think they really focus on with, um, you know, the things that they present upon and, and they write about and and that's about student debt and also about, uh, collaborative negotiation. And so really, I think that for this conversation, if you are a young professional that's maybe in grad school or you're about to start grad school or you're in that first job um, or even you're later in your career, I think you're going to get some some really awesome takeaways from this because these two have been thinking a lot about this and have a lot of really actionable sort of insight into ways to be thinking about how to like really make sure that you're properly valuing yourself uh, within the market. And so I thought that maybe the best way to kick things off as we sort of walk through this chronologically in your life, I think that we start with student debt. And I know Natalie with you, this is sort of uh, a big part of your passion, largely because it was it's very tied to your own experience paying down your student debt. So um, if you'd be cool with it, I would love to hear your experience um, and some of the big takeaways that you've had throughout this process of, of acquiring student debt, but then also now paying it down. Sure. That sounds fantastic. So um, I guess for me, it's just kind of starting at the beginning of where I really made it into college, you know, getting out of high school and going to college and where my journey began. And for me, it was maybe a little bit different than other people because I am a first generation college student and um, had really great familial support in terms of, yep, it seems like everybody needs to go to college these days. So that's probably what you should do. Um, Despite the fact that my dad is a tradesman, you know, operates heavy machinery and my mom is a beautician. So realistically, could I have gone into a trade? Absolutely. Um, But I think there's this mindset that everybody must go to college these days. And so my parents encouraged me to do that if that was my passion. So um, off to college I went, but education wise, did I really know a lot about student loans or debt or really how student loans worked? when it came to, sure, you're taking out this money, but really what does that mean in the long term? And what is that going to look like once you're done with school? When I first started college, I didn't even know I was going to be an audiologist. I wanted to be a teacher. So I thought I was just going to be that nice four-year degree, do my student teaching and and off I go and then I'll teach. And I actually really wanted to be a Teach for America teacher. So it's almost like I've always had that financial thought process on the mind where you know, there are positive, there's positive things about being a Teach for America teacher, even though it might not mm-hmm. be in the, the best possible neighborhood, but it has that student loan, 
you know, payback type of system if you work in some of these different situations. So anyways, long story short, obviously I'm here today as an audiologist, so I'm not a teacher and I never finished going to school for education because I transferred um, and decided to do something different. And so Along the process, though, it's just taking out loans for your education, because even though my parents were super supportive of me going to college, there was no financial help that was coming from my parents to right. allow me to, you know, pay for college. And, and and everybody knows when you go to college and you're under the age of 24 and you're not considered an independent, what you get for school is also tied to your parents' income. And if people don't know, people that are in the union and are operating engineers, they make decent money. And so I, a lot of times did not qualify for a lot of things in terms of, um, I'm not going to call it free money because it's not free. We all know this. Um, but money that's going to come from the government that's going to allow to help people, um, financially when it comes to going to college. So I wasn't really privy to a lot of that because of my parents' income. Um, and so I was kind of on my own regardless. So lots of money to pay back eventually. And so, like I said, because I, I always kind of have this my financial mindset, even wanting to be a teacher, I knew that paying my student loans off, that's always kind of been something I've been interested in, which is a really weird thing to be interested in um, in your early 20s, but that's fine. Um, but going on and going forward, where my passion really was with this was really during my fourth year. And it was really tied to the amount of loans that I had taken out and the type of loans. So um, I'm very transparent about it. But when I graduated, I was in school for nine years, including my two years in community college, which do not count in the total because that was completely paid for. Um, when it comes to the set, we'll say seven years that I was in school, I did amass, you know, $136,000. And guys, that was me going to a state school for both undergrad and grad school. It's not like I went to a private college and paid all of this money. And I know Ashley probably has a pretty similar experience with that as well. I do. But Natalie, can I ask you a quick question and give you an opportunity to toot your own horn real quick? Well, I guess I can consider that. <laughs> um, so you graduated with 136000 Is that what you said? Mm -hmm. And how many years ago did you graduate? Uh, it'll be f four years, actually. I think I, I think we're right around when I graduated in 2017. And, and how much do you have left? Um, I think just under 11,000 to go. That's insane. That's that awesome. Insane. It's, uh, I mean, I, like I said, I'm very transparent about it, but guys, I pay $3,000 a month to my student loans. And I know that people are going to think they're going to hear that and think that I'm a crazy person, um, which to be fair, you guys haven't met me, so I might be, um, <laughs> but I'm so, it was such a like important thing for me. And my husband and I are both on the same page financially. And, um, just in terms of what our future goals are and where we want to be. And that's really what fueled this. But during my fourth year for me, it was just understanding what I had done. And it was very sobering in that I have these federal loans with these interest rates and I have these private loans with these interest rates and these, these ones are fixed, but these ones are variable and all of these could change. And these are super high. My private loans had super high interest rates. And so it was just looking at that and realizing what financially that was going to mean when it came to actually graduating. And then after that six month grace period for the federal loans, which was about 120,000 of that, when I got to that point, what was I going to do? I needed to have an actual plan. So Natalie, um, can I ask you one more question real quick? Yeah. 
Um, so I think the $3,000, that might be like really uh, a lot for some people to hear that number, but you're not necessarily saying that people have to pay that much per month. No. And I didn't pay that much this entire time either. Mm-hmm. Um, I paid a variable amount and I can talk more about the strategy that I used personally. So I have not been paying $3,000 a month this entire time. I actually ramped it up like that during COVID um, to be able to, because of the interest freeze, um, I was very, very motivated to have these gone by the end of the, the potential interest freeze in September, which I will. I'll be done in August. Um, maybe it would actually be helpful to talk about some of those tactics that you used. Can yeah. You- okay. Yeah. Yes. Um, so there's a lot of strategies out there. Um, when you graduate with your student loans, um, with your federal loans, you automatically are on a 10 year fixed plan, which just means that they allot a certain amount that you're going to pay monthly and you're going to do that for 10 years straight. And then once you do that, you're going to pay them off within 10 years. Um, that's where you start. And that's fine. Um, however, for me, I was starting at, I think my payment was twelve dollars or $1,300 a month. And I also had private loans still at that point, totaling about $16,000. And, and like I said, the interest rates were closer to maybe 9 or 10%, which is really, really high. So for me, it was very important for me to pay off all of my private loans and then get serious about my federal loans. So for me, I chose to go the income-based repayment route, which is what a lot of people do. And what this allows is that you're going to pay only maybe 10 to 15% of your discretionary income. And that's going to be a much smaller portion per month than your 10-year fixed would be. So my first year, I think I paid maybe like 200 and $40 a month and or around there. And then my second year, it was actually less than that. And it's because it goes with your tax returns. And so I got a break one of the years because I was a fourth year and I didn't make that much money. And so um, I it just it's variable based on your income and also the amount that you have left. So I'm currently still on an income based repayment plan and my monthly payments actually $518 a month now. And then Um, The reason that I went this route is because for me, it was important that if I'm going to pay extra money outside of the amount that I am required to pay, I personally want to choose where that money is going. And this is all because of the strategy that I decided that I was going to use. There's two different strategies payment wise, and this can be applied to anything with debt. So you have your, your debt snowball and your debt avalanche. Your debt snowball is going to be the method that was made famous by Dave Ramsey. So you probably heard of it. Um, But this is where you have a bunch of different payments, a bunch of different debts, and you're going to pay off the very smallest one, regardless of the interest rate. And then you're going to pay that smallest one off. And then you're going to go and you're going to go on and continue paying things off in just the smallest amount, regardless of interest rate, um, because that's going to keep you going in terms of motivation. The debt avalanche, on the other hand, is all based on interest rate. You're going to start with your highest interest rate, no matter how astronomical that payment may be or how much that loan amount is. You're going to pay that one and you're just going to chip away at that one until it's gone because it's the highest interest rate. Um, I'm really, really big fan of that second method. So debt avalanche is what I did because I was able to pay off higher interest loans, which means that the amount that I was accruing in interest monthly got smaller and smaller and smaller so that my money went further. And then that's why it's an avalanche and it's big. And you, by the end, you're, you're really rolling downhill pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I would probably prefer that one as well. It makes more sense. I think that you want to get rid of as much of the interest as possible. You know that it's a really good strategy. If motivationally you can do it. So the big thing is, is, um, 
when you go to grad school, you take out these large loans. Okay. So guys, if you you're in grad school now, you know, you know, you've gone to grad school, you get the financial or the federal government gives you $20,000, 20,500 a year to go to grad school. So if you take out that whole loan, you get that money. And then once you actually have to pay it back, it's, it's worth more because of the capitalized interest. So me, my high, my 6.8% federal government loans were $25,000. So you're literally think about your $500 payment from the government and you're literally just chipping away at it really, really small. You have to be able to pay additional money in order to ever get that to go anywhere. But motivationally, debt avalanche can be hard for people because you're literally staring down a $25,000 loan. And guys, I have like nine or 10 different separate loan tokens for um, all of my student loans. So I did not consolidate as well. All of my loans are separate. They're all under the same company federally, but they're all their own individual loan tokens. So I could just focus in on one. So anyways, long story short there, my method was income-based repayment because it allowed me to pay the minimum amount on my federal loans while I finished my private loans. Once I got those gone, I kept the income-based repayment. And then I just allotted a certain amount of money extra that I was going to try to pay monthly in order to um, pay off my student loans um, in a faster fashion. And so I've done that over time, and then I've been able to um, a lot more money over time as well going between positions because I've worked at more than one audiology position in my, my time, my, my short time here in my career. Well, that was extremely um, – I, I think that was really appreciated because I love the transparency there. I'm sure there's somebody that's listening to this that – this is going to really resonate with. Um, Ashley, how about you? What uh, Before we move on from the student loan piece of this, any additional thoughts that you want to add to everything that Natalie just shared? No, uh, Natalie and I took very similar tactics in terms of student loan repayment. The only thing that I would add is that if you find yourself in a job where you get a bonus or something like that, bonuses, um, decide before you get your bonus how you're going to spend it. So I'm going to put like, you know, 50% towards savings, 25% towards student loans and 25% for something for myself or however that looks to you. Um, and I'd, I'd recommend obviously putting some of it towards your student loans because the sooner you you get them paid off, the less you're paying overall. Yeah, I completely agree. And I guess uh, now as we sort of you know, here we are, it's May. So you have a lot of people that are graduating right now. Um, So I think that it would be interesting to hear from you, Ashley. Um, You've done a lot of, uh, you've written a lot and I've heard you on podcasts talk about negotiations and the importance of negotiations, the proper way to do them, how to uh, prepare for them. So wherever you want to begin here, if you're speaking to, let's say a fourth year, somebody that maybe just finished their externship entering into the work world for the first time, or somebody that's even, you know, moving into their second job, what are some of those big considerations in ways that you would be thinking about this and you would share with them? Yeah. So I think the first thing um, that I would think about is kind of how these two topics marry together. Um, So you can't really negotiate in a way that's in your best interest if you don't know your financial situation. If you don't know how much do I need to bring in each month to be able to pay my bills, buy my groceries, um, pay my student loans, um, and any other expenses that you might have. Having said that, we all went to school for at least eight years, more like nine to 11 if you're me and Natalie. Um, (laughs) But 
you don't need to accept a job that just covers those bare minimums. When you're figuring out kind of what your reservation point is, um, it's okay to account for things that you want as long as they're within reason. So if that's, you know, a gym membership at a nice gym or getting your nails done or traveling twice a year, um, you can find a job that will afford you those things, but you need to go into the negotiation knowing what it is that you want to get out of it and what you can provide to the clinic to make them see your worth. Yeah. Um, Cause I think that what's interesting is that a lot of the time, I think you're so eager to get that first job and you're willing to just say yes, as soon as you get the offer. And what would you say to somebody in that position? I mean, what are some of the things that, you know, before you do that, what's the right way to approach that in your opinion, when you are starting to get your first offers? Yeah. So I think um, you kind of hit the nail on the head with that comment where a lot of us, when we graduate, we think, oh, I'll accept this job and then I'll negotiate my next job. But in reality, your first negotiation, excuse me, is the most important negotiation. Every job after that's going to ask you what your last salary was. um, And, you know, they use that to kind of figure out what what they think that you'll accept um, based on your last salary. And over the course of our working careers, um, negotiating can earn us two to four million dollars that we wouldn't have without negotiating. Wow. <laughs> but that makes sense. Yeah. Because yeah. it's all about the starting point. Exactly. And what you're building off of, like you said, each successive job is sort of predicated on what you made prior. Exactly. Um, and I also think that a lot of us go into this afraid of what will the employer think, or I'm going to look pushy or things like that. And first of all, you're not, you're just not, if you approach it in, in a collaborative way, like you said, um, where you're not just saying, this is how much I need to make because I have a hundred thousand dollars in student loans, but you say, um, you know, I can help manage social media or I can create a clinic newsletter, tell them why from their perspective, you deserve that amount of money. Um, it, it can really pay dividends and it shows that you value yourself when you're talking to them. And it's really hard to expect somebody else to see your value if you don't see it in yourself. Yeah. I, okay. You're hitting on a few things here that I think are really, really interesting. And one of my big takeaways from what Natalie said at the beginning around student debt is around first and foremost, you have to really concretely understand where you lie financially, right? You have to have this, um, you know, understanding of here's what I can, here's the bare minimum of what I can make and here's what I wish I could make and, and understand how long that would give you, like what kind of runway that would be in terms of paying this down. So once I think you have that in mind and you do your homework and you understand, then you can start to come to the table. And this is where things I think start to get really interesting, particularly with today's young professionals, um, with a lot of the things that I think they're way more savvy with that are maybe a little undervalued in the market. So I think the onus is on them to help to calibrate the market for themselves to say, this is what this is actually worth. Um, And so I want to talk through some of these different things. You had mentioned social media. I want to get to that in a minute. Um, Let's start though with like externships at, as a whole. Um, So help me to understand when you have that year where you're in the clinic, what are what are tangible things that you can pull from there and say um, in that first negotiation when you maybe are going to counter and you say, I really appreciate this offer. I'm very flattered. And then you go and you counter. Um, what are some of those tangible things that you can cite uh, that might actually be able to, you can help to justify a, a higher ask? 
I think you could track patient scene. You could track your close rate, help rate, whatever you want to call that. Um, any other special tests that you've performed and, and have tangible numbers for these, not like approximately eight patients a day, but, you know, 36 patients a week or, you know, however many you saw over the course of your time is really what I would say, just because the number is going to be naturally larger, but the um, human brain can easily be tricked into thinking that it's actually a larger number when you're just averaging it over a longer time span. Um, let's see, any additional tasks that you took on? So if you were in charge of inventory or social media or walk-ins, anything like that, I would track and I would track everything with very specific numbers if you can, even if it's technology tier for hearing aid, hearing aids, excuse me, the number of hearing aids sold per technology tier. So I would agree with that, Ashley. I Number one, when I was a fourth year, I was pretty autonomous at the private practice that I was at. And I did do that. I kept a spreadsheet of tier level and pricing, and it was really easy to do with the um, system that we used. But um, being able to have that tangible numbers and understand what my you know rate of helping people was and things like that, because I had planned to stay in that private practice realm post-graduation. And then the other thing too, in terms of the list of things that you just had, depending on what practice you're or what type of setting you're go going to, another thing that I see some fourth years doing is grand rounds. And I think that's another really strong um, piece of, I did this case study and I saw these cases and I have presented in front of people. And I think that's a really, really tangible skill for a fourth year as well, depending on where you're headed for your first job. I totally agree, Natalie. I think, um, I think in addition to grand rounds, something else that oftentimes students are tasked with and do a great job at it is creating process documents for clinics. So what is the protocol that we're going to use for adult hearing aid evaluations? What's the protocol that we're going to do for sanitizing? Those are things that, again, those are really valuable tasks to show that you have done, can do it, and are willing to take on that non-clinic work. Yeah, I mean, like, I love this kind of stuff that's very actionable, right? Like, I hope there's somebody that's listening to this today that is listening and they're saying, like, well, what are the real things that I can do? And I hope these are really good examples because... The way I look at it is, you know, when you're going, most people are, they have a, a conceived notion, a preconceived notion of what it is that they're hiring, right? And so it is the, the ball is in your court to shape what you think that role should look like. And so they're, they're not going to come up with this on their own and, and ask you things like, what are you really passionate about? Um, can you help me with these things that I'm not even that comfortable with, or, or I don't, I know how to use like social media. And so I think that there is a huge opportunity that's really starting to build right now, where it's all about taking your own, I don't want to say like accountability, but basically making it and owning this whole idea of like, this is what I will bring to the table. And, and whether it be, you know, I had in my externship, I was able to, you know, whether it be with patient engagement, or like you said, around inventory management, maybe there's something that you saw from an operation standpoint that you can help to improve the efficiencies. And can you quantify that? Like, is there a way that you can actually speak to this will in, improve the bottom line by $5,000 or something like that. Um, so that I, and, and I love the grand rounds thing too, where it's like, you know, if, if you already are passionate about a particular facet of the industry and you've started to go down that path, 
it's just to completely go in on that and start to build an online persona around that. Yeah, build and your really, brand as an audiologist. What do you, you want to be remembered for? I mean, I so I heard you two on Dakota Sharp's podcast uh, on the ear. Shout out, awesome podcast. And another episode I listened to um, was Lindsay Cockburn. So she's an audiologist and she had a whole, I, I highly encourage anybody that's listening to this conversation that this is resonating with you. Go and check out that conversation because the whole thing's around personal brand building, which I am a massive advocate for. Um, I, when I graduated, I started my Twitter account because I didn't have, well, Instagram just came out, but like TikTok wasn't a thing and YouTube wasn't nearly as big of a thing. But my whole idea, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn, was I felt like the only way in which I could stand out in, in sort of the professional world was to create a pers- a professional identity that lived online. And, and that lends itself to so many opportunities. And I look at today's generation, you have so many digital tools at your disposal, and you have to recognize that the vast majority of the tenured professionals in any given industry, in, in, in this industry as well, do not, they're not native to this. They don't know what how to use a YouTube channel, how to use an Instagram channel, how to use a TikTok channel, any of these things. And so if you already are really good at using those in your personal life, start thinking about, can I actually take these things and make it button it up? Like you're, you're not going to be able to like be like doing memes and like really funny joking things. Actually, you could maybe do memes in some setting, but I think a lot of it is like this idea of being able to create this thing that you can then present in, in a way that's actually really impactful. You can say, I can make, I can create a YouTube channel for you, or here's how I've, I've mocked up an Instagram and here's the kinds of things that I would be, be able to post on your behalf. And here's the actual ROI. Like you would maybe for you know, sure we, bring we, the numbers. Exactly. In. We can create a campaign to measure this so I can actually see this is the amount of new leads that I'm generating. Because again, at the, at the end of the day, you're actually probably undervalued and you're not even recognizing that there is so much value that you can bring by utilizing some of these things that you're really already good at and you're native to, and you can present it in such a way where it's fiscally motivating for the practice. So I, when I heard your episode with Dakota, I immediately went back to that episode that, that he had with Lindsay. And I was thinking, this is also intertwined where so much of it is dependent on taking the initiative. And there's a number of people that I've seen that that are starting to do that. You two are really good examples where you're really carving this out as your own niche. I've seen like Mark Trung, who who has the Hear Me Out podcast. He created a YouTube channel and he basically got a job through that. So it's like, there's, I, I just, I think that the world is kind of like, it's, it's yours for the taking, but you can't just expect your employer to be like, I would love to pay you an additional $10,000 if you can create a YouTube channel that sometimes they don't know what they're looking for. Like it's our, I think it's on us and I, you know, the pay gaps and things like that are a separate conversation. I'm not saying that it wouldn't be ideal to get offered a salary that you're happy with from the beginning, but regardless, that's not the world that we live in. And so we, we really need to learn how to show what we can bring to the clinic, even if it's not something, um, that's listed in the job description, but something that you think you can do to help the clinic. And then of course, phrasing in a way that isn't, um, like disrespectful to them or condescending to them. 
And I think that it's all about the way that you position this. And I think a lot of that is in the way that you you prep for it, in the way that you frame things. And I know both of you have a lot of thoughts on this as to, um, I guess, maybe first of all, where do you begin with formulating um, some sort of um, way to kind of practice this? What are some of those things that you can routinely do, whether it be like in the mirror or you're role-playing with somebody else? Um, can you just speak to this a little bit about, again, as maybe someone that's listening that has no experience doing this, wh- where would you even kind of start them off? So I think there's two, well, more than two things, but two kind of main paths that I see for practicing negotiations. And one of them is in situations that don't really matter. Um, so look at a couple of gyms in town, get prices from all of them, go back to one and see if they'll match a different one's price or if they'll go down in price. Um, again, those situations seem really overwhelming at first, but realistically, the best thing that will happen is they'll say yes. And the worst thing that will happen is they will still take your money if you end up paying full price to join the gym. Like they're not going to decline right. you as a member. Um, getting upgraded to uh, a higher class when you're flying. Um, those are all situations that you can negotiate with where nothing is really on the line for you. You're just getting practice from it. That's actually really great. So you're basically saying, think about like, make this part of your mentality is like, can I negotiate this? Um, that's pretty brilliant because that is, there's a lot of real world examples of how you could start. For to sure. This. Realistically, everything is a negotiation, yeah. but it's just us being in the mindset of this is also a negotiation. And I think Ashley just touched on something really important that was very subtle is that you're going to these gyms and you're verbally saying out loud, here's what I'm hoping for. I went here, I went here, or even negotiating, you know, different flight class, you're saying these things out loud. And I know I can speak for both of us and that in our current roles um, in the industry, we do a lot of public speaking and we do a lot of presentations and we get up in front of a lot of people every single day. And I can sit here behind my computer and I can create a beautiful presentation and I can type out the most wonderful slide notes. But unless I sit down and I actually verbalize and physically say out loud what I want to say on that particular slide and practice how I'm going to say something, it's not going to go well if I don't do that. And I think it's the exact same thing with negotiation. So when, you know, when Ashley said in Dakota's podcast, practice makes perfect, some of it is just actually tangibly going out and practicing negotiation skills, but some of it is actually just practicing exactly what you're going to say. Um, Because if you don't say it out loud and you just say it in your head or you're reading what you're writing, when you have to actually deliver that, it's not going to go the way that you think it's going to go. Totally. That was the second path that I was going to say is literally like I would start with writing down what you're going to say. Like if they offer this or higher, this is what I'm going to say. Or if they accept, this is what I'm going to say. Um, And practice saying it out loud. And whether it's you negotiating at the airline gate or you practicing your negotiation or actually negotiating your first job salary, it is going to feel super awkward and uncomfortable. Like it's just going to, but every time after that, it gets easier and easier because you build confidence. You, you know, just like anything else that you practice, you get a little bit more or a little bit, excuse me, less nervous um, each time that you do it. And so like Natalie said, call a friend and and practice it over the phone with them, um, a trusted mentor, anybody, but get yourself used to that feeling. Yeah, I see too. Like I'll link this in the, in the show notes, but um, Ashley wrote a really great article for it's on audiology.org and it's called negotiate. You're worth it. And you have some awesome negotiating tips in here and it's bringing me back to 
my job that I had before I was at Oak Tree, I was in a, a sales job and we learned a lot of um, ways to communicate things. And like one that's always sticks out of my mind is um, when you're selling to somebody the first time you use this feel felt found method, which is like, I completely understand how you feel. Um, we've had a number of people that have felt that way and what they ultimately found. And so it's like, it's a, basically these things that you condition to yourself. And, I, and so I would just say like, check these out, these negotiating tips that she has here, because um, there's so many things like that, little things that you can start to do to train yourself. And what that ultimately will do is it will make you feel, like you said, a little bit less nervous each time. And it will start to become second nature. Because I think that for a lot of you that are in a position like this, you know, you're going to have that first experience. And like I said, it's going to be really hard not to just say, I'm in, thank you so much. This is so exciting. This is my first offer. Um, but these types of tactics can really help to where uh, you can you can make sure that you're being very respectful in terms of how you respond to the offer when they just outright say, here you go, sign on the dotted line in a way that you can still say like, I would like to have some time to consider this. Thank you so much. Um, so Ashley, like, with, with this, what are some of those other things in terms of you get that initial offer or you're in a situation like that where you want to be respectful, um, but also still be able to make sure that you're, you're having your own considerations involved here? Like, what are some of those things that you can do to um, speak to, you know, in the moment and then also after the moment in terms of going back to the table and, and kind of back to the drawing board and being like, all right, now what exactly is it that I want to ask for in terms of, is it just strictly monetary? It might also be benefits that you can be substituting for these different asks. So what are some of those different things? Um, so in the moment, my kind of general advice is never accept it right when they offer it to you. Um, more than likely, that's going to be an emotional response and not necessarily a rational or logical response. It could be both, but give yourself time to really look over the offer. Um, also, keep in mind that a verbal offer of a salary does not give you a whole picture of what you're getting offered. So you would really want to ask for an offer letter so that you know what your time off looks like, what your benefits look like. Um, so really taking time to look at the whole picture. Additionally, hopefully by the time you've gotten to the point that you've received the offer, you already know what your walkaway point would be. Um, you should decide that beforehand, again, just to avoid making emotional decisions. Um, I understand that there are things in our life outside of our control, and sometimes there might be a time where you have to accept a job um, because you need to pay the bills. And so this is kind of... Um, these tips are kind of going into it with the idea that you have the flexibility to be able to say, I need a couple days. Um, if they're not willing to give, or I'll speak for myself, if I asked for a couple days and a company or a person wasn't willing to give that to me, that would be a red, a red flag. Um, I would yeah. want them to respect the fact that, you know, I understand not a month, but maybe like three to five business days. Um, just to kind of let yourself again, look over the whole package, go back to your spreadsheets that you've made of how much money you need and, and things like that. Um, like you said, kind of some other tactics for it. Um, the list in that, uh, in that article for negotiating, I think that um, in addition to, to helping you 
as, as the negotiator, it really helps the whole negotiation process because it focuses on how you can think about it from the other person's perspective or what you might be doing that is thinking about things only from your perspective. And mm-hmm. again, ideally you want a long-term relationship with them. And so going into the negotiation, um, you can understand where they're coming from and not necessarily concede to everything, but at least, you know, communicating clearly that you, you know, that you understand, but then asking for something else. So we'll say that like somebody gets an offer and they say, here's $50,000. And you're like, go over your spreadsheet, you count our offer and you ask for 60. And they say, I can't do that. Then think about what else you could ask them for and try and ask questions that will give you that answer. So whether it's, you know, um, more PTO or working from home one day a week to manage their social media, but um, we're really trying to like expand the pie instead of just like cutting it and each taking our pieces of it. Right. No, I like that whole theme of collaborative negotiation because it should be kind of a win-win. And I'm looking at this spreadsheet now and it's really interesting. So you have, you know, like salary, moving expense coverage, signing bonus, start date, vacation time. Um, I just think these are really in- interesting considerations to have. And again, I think it goes to like, what is it that you really want out of this? Would a four day work week and being able to work from home one day, like what is that sort of dollar amount in your head? Right. And, and how totally. can you start to, you know, really kind of like put a figure to these wishes so that, and, and this is where I think you do have to have empathy to your employer to understand this is what, this is what that actually equates to in their eyes. And so, to your point, I think if you can make it so that, look, the, the reason I would like this day off uh, or I'd like to work from home this day or whatever the consideration is, is, is because of X. And I think that X would allow for me to, you know, create more opportunity for this or whatever it might be, totally. you know, so long as you can help to justify what you're asking. So it's not like, well, who are you to just like ask? And that can things. be about like PTO too. Like, I think that I will be a more productive employee if mm. I have better work-life balance. So it can be something that maybe on the surface, it looks like it only benefits you. But like you said, this is all kind of like a sale. And so you need to <laughs> sell them on why, why it benefits them for you to have more PTO or half day Fridays. And I think to me, the beauty of the preference street preference sheet um, is how customizable it is. So, you know, mine might have salary, PTO, and, you know, start date. And somebody else's might have um, student loan repayment or buy into the practice or things like that. And so really take it and make it your own. Yeah, I agree fully. Um, so... I guess like with this whole idea, I mean, what are some of the do not do's? What are some of the things to avoid? Um, anything that comes to mind, Natalie, with you, like that is from your own experience or from um, just like, you know, researching all this and, and understanding it is what are things to avoid, um, you know, as it relates to this entering into the work world or you're moving into your second job? Um, anything that comes to mind there? That's a good question. I'm not sure if I have a full answer for that. Um, I'm sure there's always something to avoid, especially with negotiation and things like that. Um, for me, though, with student loans, if you're really, I mean, student, you want to keep you want to keep forward momentum, right? So, um, I guess if I was looking at from that perspective of of things that you might want to avoid, I personally would af- 
I would try to avoid going backwards. Um, so if I made X amount of money at my first job and now I'm moving to a different job, that's maybe not necessarily a lateral move. Maybe you're going from private practice to ENT, um, going backwards in salary, even if the promise of higher bonuses is there, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that because you're on a certain structure of what you financially plan to do with your student, you know, student loans, but also just your financial goals in, in general. And if you're at minimum, you need to at least be making a lateral move, if not going the other direction with your second and jobs beyond them. So I would personally try to avoid that. Yeah, sure. I, I agree with that. Um, I think a couple other things uh, that I would think of is we talked about this a little, but don't use your debt as a reasoning or a justification for a certain salary. Mm. Um, that's not something that they benefit from. It is something that you need to account for, but figure out what you can do or offer to get that higher salary. I would avoid counteroffering more than twice. Um, I would argue that at that point, it's no longer a collaborative process. And so then you just need to figure out if it's the right fit for you or not. Um, the third one that I was thinking about is something that I wish I thought about when I accepted my first offer is if you can afford to not rush to accept an offer, don't. There will be other jobs posted. Audiologists are always being hired. And again, it's that's a, a nice to have if you can't afford that. And um, the last one is to beware of non-competes. I'm not saying don't sign something mm -hmm. if it has the non-compete. I would strongly encourage you to uh, bite the bullet and pay for a lawyer to look it over, though. Um, any job offer, really, but especially one that has a non-compete. Um, yeah. Because, you know, you might think that there's never anywhere in that town that you'd want to wor work afterwards, but you could really be pigeonholing yourself where you have to move if you want another job. Yeah. Absolutely. That's actually a really good one. Yeah. So as we sort of come to the close here, um, I think this has been super insightful. I'm even myself, like I'm learning a lot from you too. And I think this is really going to resonate with some of the listeners out there. So um, any other topics that pertains to either student debt um, or, you know, collaborative negotiations that come to mind that we haven't covered that maybe you want to touch on? So I'm actually going to say one because this kind of happened prior to when we started. We, we sort of were talking about um, how much money that you take out for grad school. And I don't think that we mm -hmm. did touch on that once we started recording. So if we can just go back to if there's students listening to this, people, maybe if you're an undergrad, maybe you're in grad school already, just consider how much money you're taking out for school. Um, it's really, really easy to fall into that pit or that trap of, hey, they're offering me so much money. I'm going to take all of this. It's going to be so great. And I'm not <laughs> going to think at all about what is going to happen later on when I have a mountain of debt that I actually have to pay back. So um, guys, I did that. I totally did that. I know Ashley said she definitely did that as well in terms of taking out additional loan money that you didn't necessarily need. So if you are a future student or a current student um, and you have the ability to take a step back and just calculate how much money that you actually need financially for your living expenses and your tuition and things like that. And maybe you don't need to take the full amount that you're being offered. Do consider doing that. Um, it, you're going to think yourself, your 20, 20 something self isn't going to think about it, but your 30 something self is going to uh, be giving you a really big pat on the back if you definitely do that. Really, sure. And like you said, to kind of calculate it, like think about how much that $5 beer you're actually paying for when you're paying interest <laughs> on it for the next 20 years. Just drink, just drink like Bud Light and, you know, exactly. Get that, uh, what is it? What did they always get in school? The, thir the 30 racks of Natty Light. Yeah. There oh, you yeah. Go. <laughs> Sneak a beer in your purse. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, um, eat and drink cheap. 
Seriously, seriously. <laughs> and I think one thing that we haven't touched on that I'll just mention really quickly is um, when you're figuring out your asking salary, do some research first. Go to bls.gov. I prefer that one over our organization's um, compensation salaries just because uh, the organization ones are self-report. BLS is not. So go to bls.gov. They will give you a map that divides by region and the median in the region. Um, I can't tell you like what you should ask for, but if you don't, like if you consider yourself to be an above average audiologist, then maybe look above the median because um, you want to anchor high. And again, just be prepared to justify your worth. And, you know, we know that you all know that you're worth it. So just, you just need to show that to the people who are hiring you. And BLS stands for Bureau of Labor Statistics. So they have all of the public wages on there. I think they track a lot of that. So yeah, cross-reference that maybe with other sources that you can find. I think a lot of it's self-reported if it comes from the industry. So that's to be aware, um, but I think it should help to at least guide you directionally as to where you probably fit in on the pace pay spectrum. But to your point, you're not mediocre. You're uh, you're exceptional um, because you're listening to this podcast. Then you have to be exceptional. Um, but no, this is uh, this has been a great conversation. I, I really think that this is a lot to think about. But you know. Obviously, I you know I had a I had a conversation on one of the panel discussions on here not long ago, and I had uh, Amin Almani on. And if you don't know Amin, he's done a lot of like work and research around um, kind of like the the basically the labor force in this industry. And one of the things that's kind of concerning is that there appears to be a labor shortage on the horizon which if you're a young professional is actually kind of exciting because there's not as many of you as to compete against. So you're, you know, there's obviously you're in high demand, but I think that, you know, obviously we as an industry need to support the young professionals that are the future of this industry. And I think that a lot of these things um, are, you know, it's, it's helping to impart a lot of the experience and the knowledge of what you went through and, and some of those experiences that you can share with somebody that's in your shoes, that's 10 years younger than you or however. So I think it's like, we all have a role to play here where we make sure that the, you know, we're kind of like helping them to avoid maybe some of the obstacles that we ran into. So I think Ashley, you have one other thing that you wanted to say? Yeah, I think honestly, this might be like the what I think is the most important part of this is ignore the negativity. So if you yeah. see on social media or in clinic or in the classroom, people are telling you not to negotiate or just accept your first offer. Ignore that. Surround yourself with people with similar values and remember that a rising tide lifts all boats and we should be doing what we can to lift each other up in the profession. I love it. What a, what a way to end it. So Natalie, Ashley, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for everybody who tuned in here to the end and we will chat with you next time. Thank Cheers. You. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Future Ear Radio. For more content like this, just head over to futureear.co where you can read all the articles that I've been writing these past few years on the worlds of voice technology and hearables and how the two are beginning to intersect. Thanks for tuning in and I'll chat with you next time. 